Now let's direct our attention back to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Romans chapter 11. And, and this week we're going to be coming to the second to the last of a 14-week study in Romans 9 through 11. Romans is a large book. And in this book there are three main sections. Romans 1 through 8, Romans 9 through 11, and Romans 12 through 16. We've done Romans 1 through 8, now we're getting close to the end of the second major section in Romans. And here, in Romans 9 through 11, we have looked deep into God's plan for the people of Israel, and at the same time, taking a deep dive into the doctrine of election. The plan of God for Israel and the doctrine of election are both controversial doctrines among Bible-believing churches. And I hope that as I have preached Romans 9 through 11, I have not shied away from preaching everything that is contained within these chapters, that I have been bold in my zeal for God's truth and have not been timid in proclaiming what is often offensive or difficult doctrine. While at the same time, I hope that I have tempered this boldness, or I have, at least not tempered, I don't know if that's the right word, I've combined this boldness with also a humility and a balanced perspective so that no matter what your thoughts on these subjects were coming into this study, you've been able to grow in your knowledge of the scriptures. I've tried to keep a proper balance between boldly asserting God's sovereignty and also the responsibility that we have as individuals to accept the genuine offer of universal salvation that God gives to the whole world. God clearly states that all who come to the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved and that it is our responsibility, it is incumbent upon us to hear that call and to obey the gospel. God is equally clear that without the electing grace of God that no one would come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that those who come are those who have been drawn by the grace and mercy of God. So all of this is a lot to take in. It can be difficult to understand at times, and it can be difficult to preach. And so as I've taken my first pass in this pulpit at Romans 9 through 11, I hope that God will take what was good in these messages and build up your faith, and anything that was misspoken or unclear would fall away, and that only the truth of God's grace would remain with us. Now, last week I was in a bit of a hurry. I tried to pack too much into one sermon. That was the first time I think I'd ever done that. And so I wanted to spend a little time this week reviewing and clarifying a few points that I hurried through last week. Number one, this was the main idea of last week's lesson, is that, that we need to remain spiritually humble before God. We must never allow ourselves to fall into a smug spiritual attitude. And this is a danger for those who have been shown great privilege. It's true in material things. Rich people often become arrogant. Well, it's also true in spiritual things. Those who have been richly blessed with spiritual graces from God can also become arrogant and smug. This was a problem that we see with the Jewish people as they received the election of God, as they received the blessings of God, the covenants of God, the scriptures of God, the prophets of God. They started to become complacent. They started to become self-confident. They started to look at themselves as being better than others. And that was never God's intention in giving spiritual graces to Israel. And it was never his intention in giving us the spiritual graces for us to exalt ourselves. Spiritual pride was Israel's stumbling stone. 
Let's not make that same mistake. Let's be on continual guard against spiritual pride. And remember the words of the Apostle Peter written to churches like ours. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. When you're dealing with any brother or sister on any issue, personal, doctrinal, practical, you want to clothe yourself with that gentleness, that meekness of Christ, that humility towards one another. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you go into a situation with pride in your heart and you are abrasive against other people because of spiritual pride, God is going to humble you. He's going to bring you down. Everyone that lifts himself up, God delights to bring down. And everyone that lowers himself down, God delights to lift up. So make sure that you are putting yourself in a position for God to lift you up and not to knock you down. Notice also in the text, Romans chapter 11, I want to remind you of what Paul wrote there in verse 20. Romans 11 verse 20 said, Even though it is true that the branches, which in this case refers to unbelieving Jewish people, the Israelites who rejected Christ, they were broken off so that we Gentiles might be grafted in, as Paul writes at the end of verse 19. That's true, Paul says. But what you need to keep in mind, us Gentiles who have been grafted in, so to speak, is the reason for this. Not because you are better than them. That's not the reason. No. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. You see, we have a faith righteousness, a God-given divine righteousness that is not our own work. It's not our own doing. Even all the good works that we do as Christians is not the righteousness that we have before God because all of our good works as Christians are still tainted with selfishness and pride and sin, a lack of love for God, too much love for ourselves, not enough love for others. And so even the good deeds that we're doing are not good enough to get us a standing before God, but our standing is based upon the gift of God's righteousness. Never forget that. Even after decades of faithful service to the Lord, your righteousness is not your standing before God. It's a faith righteousness, a God-given righteousness, a grace righteousness that you stand in. And so don't become proud, but be humble. You stand fast through your faith. So remember the reason why Israel was broken off. They become spiritually proud. They were standing in their own righteousness instead of standing in the righteousness of Christ. Don't do that. And so notice that Paul, in verse 20, doesn't say they were broken off because they were unelect and you were grafted in because you're elect. No. He says they were broken off because of their unbelief and you stand fast through faith. So don't use the doctrine of election to nullify the importance of faith. We have to keep the proper balance that Scripture keeps that balance here. We don't want to be one-sided in our view of things one way or the other. But when you walk through the truth, you get to hold on to both the doctrine of election and this emphasis on faith and our responsibility to persevere in faith. Now, number two on our review, looking backwards, is we want to participate with God, his plan, his purpose in our salvation, in making Israel jealous. All right? So, I talked about this, it's been in chapter 11, it's been in chapter 10, that one of the reasons, certainly not the only reason, but one of the reasons why God has saved us Gentiles is to make Israel jealous. And if that's God's purpose in saving you, then 
Let's participate in that. Let's do everything we can to make Jewish people jealous of how good we have it in Christ. We want Jewish people to be able to see our love. We want them to be able to see our joy. We want them to be able to see our hope. We want them to be able to see the spiritual riches that we have in a fellowship with the God who created the heavens and the earth and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who gave us the Old Testament scriptures and all the promises that are there. Now we're enjoying so many of those promises being fulfilled in their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let's live that life in sight of the Jewish people and let's help in God's purpose of making them jealous. All right? So that's number two. We want to make Israel jealous of all of the spiritual riches we have in their Messiah. And number three, I want to make this clear from last week. I don't think I was as clear as I wanted to be when I went back and listened to the sermon, is that when we talk about the olive tree, its roots and its branches, and, and all of that metaphor that is developed there in Romans 11, verses 17 to 24, the thing here is you've got to focus on the main point of Paul's metaphor, his illustration, this extended analogy of the olive tree. And what I mean by focusing on the main point here is that you don't want to get too bogged down into saying, well, what exactly is the root of the tree? What exactly is the olive tree itself? And get into a discussion on is there one people of God or two people of God? And, and we talked about some of those issues last week. But remember, that's not the main point of what Paul's talking about here. And what you have to be careful when you're dealing with a metaphor is to not try to wring truth out of the metaphor that was never the main point of the metaphor. When somebody creates a metaphor, they've got one main idea that they're trying to get across to you. Now, if you try to divide up the metaphor too much and try to say, well, this is what this part of the metaphor is and this is what that part of the metaphor is, sometimes you end up reading into it things that were never intended. So don't get too focused on what are the roots and what is the olive tree itself and how does this relate to the relationship of Israel and the church. All of that's kind of complicated and it's not to be decided by this metaphor here. It's to be decided by a full understanding of everything the scripture teaches on those subjects, okay? Just a point of clarification. Number four, the fourth thing I want us to do from what we looked at last week, we want to be spiritually humble, we want to make Israel jealous, we want to focus on the main point of parables. And then number four, we are challenged, we are exhorted by what Paul wrote last week to persevere in the faith. Now there were questions about eternal security and the doctrine of the perseverance of the faith that are raised by verses 21 and 22. Take a look there at verses 21 and 22 in your Bibles. You see, if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in this kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. So this idea of being cut off, this idea of being fallen, this idea of the severity of God, it raises questions about can you lose your salvation? And here's what I want to say a little bit more clearly than I was able to say it last week about losing your salvation. An individual cannot lose his salvation because an individual has not acquired his salvation by works and you can't lose it by anything that you do either. However, people can appear to lose their salvation. It can look like someone loses their salvation. What do I mean by that? Well, divine election is not fully known by us until the end. There are people here who look like Christians. Many people here look like Christians. 
But there might be some among us who do not finish with us as Christians. At some point along the way, they might say, well, I don't really believe that stuff anymore. I believed it at one point in my life, and I went to church and studied the Bible and got all into that Christian thing, but I don't believe that anymore, and they'll fall away from the faith. I've seen it happen with people that I never would have thought would have left the church and fallen away from Christ. People can appear to lose their salvation, but we know from the Scripture that it's not possible for someone to lose their salvation, and what the Scripture reveals is if they go out from us, they were not really of us. They can really look like us. They might even think that they're exactly like us. But God knows the difference between somebody who is just appearing to be a Christian and someone who is not a Christian, but we don't. And so the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is one of those things that it's not just a doctrine to use for comfort and say, all right, once saved, always saved. I don't have to worry about losing my salvation. But it's also a doctrine to use for warning. And the Bible has this repeated emphasis of warning to Christians to not fall away. Paul wrote to the Galatians, concerned that they were falling away. The whole letter to the Hebrews that we have, a large letter, of the main purpose of that letter is to encourage Jewish Christians not to fall away from the faith. And so, for all the living, there is a danger of falling away that the Bible presents for us, and how do we guard ourselves against that danger? It's by persevering in the faith. And as we persevere in the faith, we know that it's God who is at work in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And so you don't want to count anybody in until the story's over, and you don't want to count anybody out until the story's over, because there's non-Christians around us who don't believe in Christ, but they might be elect, and they're going to be saved before the end. So for all the living, there is hope, and for all the living, there is danger. This is the way the scripture addresses our current situation And I just wanted to to try to provide some clarity on this doctrine of persevering in the faith. All who persevere in the faith are those whom God has chosen. Those who don't persevere in the faith were never saved to begin with. And what do we do? We persevere in the faith. Number five, the fifth command here, respect the Jews. Respect the Jews. This goes along with number one, because you don't respect other people properly when you're not humble. When you are arrogant, when you are proud, that's when you start disrespecting other people. And this was a problem that was developing in the first century church. And Paul had to deal with it here in a gentle way in his letter to the Romans by writing Romans 9 through 11 and also what comes later in chapters 12 through 15, commanding the Gentiles to respect the Jews and likewise the Jews to respect the Gentile brothers and sisters in the church. Now, when I say respect the Jews, let me make it clear, That doesn't mean that we praise false religion. The Jews are not equal to Judaism as most Jews worship God today, according to rabbinic Judaism that has been passed down that is very much a spiritual successor to the Phariseeism that Jesus and the apostles confronted in their own day. Now, while I am opposed to rabbinic Judaism, and we should all be opposed to rabbinic Judaism, that doesn't mean we are against Jews, that we are for the Jews. The question here is just which Jews had the right interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures? Was it the Pharisees, or was it Jesus and his apostles, along with John the Baptist and others? Which group was the faithful representation? So whichever side you come out on, do you know what? you're worshiping a Jewish God. Whichever side you come out of, you've got the Jewish Bible. 
that our spiritual heritage is very, very Jewish. And so we are pro-Jewish as Christians because it's from the Jews that our Savior came. It's from the Jews that we have the Holy Bible. The Jews are still God's chosen nation. So we are pro-Jew without being pro-Judaism. We must never allow ourselves to avoid one error by falling into another. We must never allow ourselves to avoid one error by falling into another. And sometimes Christians will do this. They'll say, you know, Christians have hated Jews in the past, and one of the ways that Christians have hated Jews is, is they've accused the Jews of being Christ killers. And so we're not going to do that. We're going to say that the Jews are not Christ killers, and we're going to say they were innocent of the blood of Christ. And they say, well, hold on, hold on a second there. We don't want to be haters of the Jewish people. We want to respect the Jews. But that doesn't mean that we're going to fall into the error of saying that they didn't put to death the Messiah, the Prince of Life, because they did. We can't deny history. We can't deny reality in order to avoid some other error. The Bible plainly states in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the Jews did kill the Lord Jesus. And for Christians to say, oh no, they didn't kill the Lord Jesus is plainly contradicting Scripture, and we can't do that. So yes, the Jews did kill the Lord Jesus, but that doesn't mean that we disrespect them. It doesn't mean that we treat them badly. Because while it is true that the Jewish people that were alive at the time of Jesus were responsible for his death. It's also true in another sense, and perhaps a more important sense, that we are responsible for the death of Christ. It's not only true that the Jews killed Jesus, but it's also true that the Romans killed Jesus. And it's not only true that the Romans killed Jesus, but it's true that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, and that you are a sinner. And that those Jewish sinners and those Roman sinners were representative of sinners in general. And so, in one sense, you are responsible for the death of Jesus. So we don't avoid one error by committing another. Instead, we want to just pursue the truth in love. So respect the Jews and do it according to truth, God's truth. This week, now that we've looked back and had this spiritual commands from the previous chapter set out before us. This week we're going to talk about how salvation is going to come full circle for the Jewish people. That God has a final solution for the Jewish question. Now I put it that way, a final solution for the Jewish question, because that phrase has historical roots. Here I've got some pictures that come back from the 1930s and Germany and other places there in Europe, where it's kind of hard to see, that's why we're getting a better projector. But here... You see, down at the bottom, a protest, and they've got a sign there that is saying that they don't want anybody to buy anything from Jewish businesses. They're calling for a boycott on Jewish businesses to try to free Germany from the Jewish control of the commercial system. All right? So don't buy anything from those Jews. And then up here, you've got a, a fence that is fencing off the Jewish part of Krakow from the other part of the city there in Poland. Krakow is Poland, right? And so they fenced them off. They didn't want anybody buying from their business. And it's like, hmm, that looks familiar. You know, the people are kind of doing something like that today in places around the world. It starts off with boycotts. It starts off with talking about how these people are bad and they're, they're bringing our society down and, and they're a danger and they're a threat. And, and you start building this animosity, this fear, this hatred in people's mind. And, and then what did it lead to? Well, in 1942... It developed into the final solution for the Jewish problem. 
And the Nazis, the ruling party in Germany during that time in World War II, the, the final solution for the Jewish problem was extermination. We've got this people that are foreign people. They don't belong here with us Europeans. They're living among us. And we've debated for a long time as to what their social status should be as foreigners living in our land and a people who have their own customs and their own system of life and their own religion. And now that they find, well, the final solution is we're going to exterminate the Jewish people. And, and the Nazis came pretty close to accomplishing that, but God's purpose stood. And God has a final solution for the Jewish problem, the question of the Jews' status in the world, that is far, far different, exactly the opposite of what the Nazis had intended. That today we're going to see God's final solution for the Jewish question is that the Jews will be first among the nations, that Jerusalem will be inhabited and controlled by Israelites, and that that will be the capital city of the world where Jesus Christ, a Jew, will rule over all the nations of the earth. That's God's final solution for the Jewish question. Far, far different than man's final solution. So let's see how God lays that out for us here in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 32. We're going to see salvation is going to come full circle. That it came from the Jews, the Jews rejected it, it comes to the Gentiles, the Gentiles accept it, and then that leads to the Jewish acceptance of the gospel as well. This is all God's wise plan about how all Israel is going to be saved. Let's read our text then, Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 32. Paul writes this, bringing his argument in Romans 9 through 11 to a conclusion. Lest you be wise in your own sight... I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election... They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they, too, have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all." Wonderful paragraph, a lot to draw out here. Let's start with verses 25 to 27 and talk about how all Israel is going to be saved. Now, he warns us here at the beginning of the verse not to be wise in our own sight. And he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. So ignorance can lead towards a wise in your own sight status. Now, what does it mean to be wise in your own sight? The Bible actually has a lot to say about this especially in the book of Proverbs. I'll share some of those with you in a moment. But wise in your own sight, it means that you won't listen to other people because you think you know it all, and you won't listen to God because you think you know better than God. That's the man who is wise in his own sight. How do you know if you are? Well, if people try to come and tell you things and you won't listen to them, and if people show you the word of God and you don't listen to it, then you are wise in your own sight. That is the problem. And here... Christians are in danger of being wise in their own sight. Now, listen to what the book of Proverbs has to say about this problem. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, puts it this way. 
The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Do you listen to advice? That is a wise man. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 2 says this, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. God is the one who is going to judge what is good and what is bad in your ways. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 7 says this, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. The man who is wise in his own eyes doesn't fear the Lord. He says, I'm smart. I know this situation. I can handle this. I don't have to do what God's word says in this and, and I'll come out ahead and I'll be able to beat this guy and I'll be able to get what I want and I'll be able to climb to the top because I'm wise in my own eyes. And he's not turning away from evil. Don't be that man. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 16, another interesting take on this. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. The sluggard is lazy in his reasoning. He's lazy in his argumentation. He'll just call you a name and say you're stupid and go on his way thinking he's won the argument. That's what the sluggard does. There's seven men on the other side who have a, a reasoned argument, who are able to give a debate and say, look, here's the evidence. Follow the science. But the wise man in his own eyes says, no, I know, I don't need to look at the evidence, I don't need to hear what you have to say, I already know everything. Don't be wise in your own eyes and be a sluggard, but instead, encourage public debate, public discussion. For those who have shut down public debate and public discussion, they are producing people who are wise in their own eyes. A culture wise in its own eyes that knows nothing and thinks they know everything. Then Proverbs chapter 28 verse 11 says this, A rich man is wise in his own eyes. Interesting, a rich man is wise in his own eyes. But a poor man who has understanding will find him out. Maybe you've gotten your riches by inheritance. Maybe you've gotten your riches by being at the right place at the right time. And you've forgotten that it wasn't your great insight, but it was just the fact that you were in the right place at the right time and now you think you're smarter than everyone else and you think that you're better than everyone else because look at me, how successful I am. Don't be that man. A rich man is wise in his own eyes. But there's a poor man who was in the wrong place at the wrong time and he, he didn't have any inheritance, yet he's got more insight than the rich man. Wisdom and money do not always go together. Okay. And then Proverbs chapter 26, verse 12 says this, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. What a hopeless situation to be in, to be wise in your own eyes. Let's be on guard against that. And here, Paul's going to help us out. He's going to say, you Gentiles, I don't want you to be wise in your own eyes, but I want you to understand a mystery. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. Now, the word mystery, key word, interesting word. In the Old Testament, there's only one book of the Bible that we have this word, and that's in the book of Daniel. In what context does the book of Daniel talk about a mystery? Well, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Remember Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar's troubled, he can't sleep, he's had this dream, he knows it's important. He knows this is not just an ordinary dream. This is a dream with a, a message from heaven. And so he's asking his astrologers, he's asking his wise men, he's, he's asking the religious people among the Chaldeans, what do I make of this dream? And they were supposed to be experts in interpreting dreams. They'd written volumes and volumes on the subject, and, and none of them could give him a satisfactory answer. 
Now, the Bible is very brief and concise in how it reports the incident, so we don't know exactly why Nebuchadnezzar was suspicious of their answers, because I'm sure they gave answers. But Nebuchadnezzar was like, no, 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 that's not it. You guys are just telling me something, and you don't know what you're talking about. So somehow Nebuchadnezzar saw through their deception. And then Daniel... He prays to God that God would reveal to him the secret because Nebuchadnezzar is going to put all the wise men to death and that includes Daniel and his friends. And so Daniel prays and God reveals to Daniel the dream and its interpretation. And so he comes and he says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Things that mankind wouldn't be able to know unless God revealed it, unless he made it known. And that's the way the word mystery is used then throughout the New Testament. The book of Daniel, the Old Testament, establishes the meaning of the word, and then that meaning is used by Paul and also in the book of Revelation repeatedly with that same idea. It's a truth that mankind would not discover or know, but it has to be revealed, and it's something that God has revealed. God has revealed a mystery concerning his plan for Israel, his plan for Gentile salvation, his plan for the final solution, the final salvation of the nation of Israel. So, What is this mystery? It's this. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So you see all those Jews who rejected Christ. You see today all the synagogues that don't worship Christ, all the religious Jewish people in Israel that don't recognize Jesus as being their Messiah. That's a partial hardening. And Paul puts it mildly. It's actually a, a very significant hardening when you look at the majority of the Jews who don't believe and the small minority who do believe. But Paul, in his love for his people, he just describes it as a partial hardening. But notice this partial hardening, it's temporary. This hardening of heart, which has been a major theme of these chapters in this letter, this hardening of heart, it comes from God, but it also is a work of man on his own heart. And it is only temporary in the case of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The fullness of the Gentiles is Paul's way of referring to all of us Gentiles in the church whom God has elected to salvation. And Paul didn't know what the fullness of the Gentiles would be. He didn't know how many people God had elected. He didn't know how long the church age was going to last. He never would have guessed probably that we were going to be here in the year 2022 still having people come and being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he probably didn't foresee that. But God's grace and his mercy is so great that that God has extended this window of salvation for the Gentiles for such a long period of time so that, that you and your children could hear the gospel. Praise God for that. And so, when God has accomplished the salvation of all that he has chosen among the nations, that's when the partial hardening of Israel will end. And Paul says that in verse 26, it's in this way that all Israel will be saved. And when he says all Israel will be saved, he's talking about Israel, the nation. He's talking about Israel, Jewish people, ethnically Jewish, who are actual physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not using Israel in any spiritual sense here to talk about just the people who believe in God or the people who end up being forgiven of their sins and going into the kingdom. That's not the definition for Israel that Paul uses. When Paul's talking Israel, you can read it throughout all these chapters and also throughout all of his other letters, he's talking about Israel. Israel means Israel. So when he says all Israel will be saved, he's talking about that generation of Israelites who will be on the earth when Jesus Christ comes back again, who are going to turn to the Lord and be saved by the appearing of Christ's glory on the earth again. 
The Bible is very clear about this in prophecy, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the words of Jesus Christ, in the words of John, in the words of Isaiah and all the Old Testament prophets, God speaks a lot about this final salvation of Israel. All Israel will be saved. And the verse that Paul quotes in order to support this assertion, as he has done throughout this whole section, he's been more careful in Romans 9-11 through 11 to insert scripture and quotations from the Old Testament than any other place in all of his writings that we have in the Bible. He's put more scripture into these verses because he wants the Gentiles to see how much the Jewish scripture is in accord with what he's teaching here. And he wants the Gentiles to see how much our grace and our salvation comes from the promises of God that are recorded in the Jewish scriptures. He puts so much Jewish scripture in here to make us indebted and to recognize the debt that we owe in God's work among the people of Israel. And now the verse that he chooses for this point comes from the book of Isaiah. Not surprising, right? When Paul quotes the Old Testament, you guess, well, maybe it's Psalms, maybe it's Deuteronomy, or maybe it's Isaiah, and you'll be right 90% of the time, if you have three guesses, right? So let's go back to where we had our scripture reading in Isaiah 59, because Paul is not ignorant of the context of what he's talking about here. When he chooses Isaiah 59, he could have chosen a lot of verses to talk about the Jews' final salvation, but instead, he chooses Isaiah 59, and I think he chooses it for a very particular reason. And that's why we had it as our scripture reading. Because what are the first 19 verses of Isaiah 59 all about? What is this chapter about? It's about the evil, the wickedness, the rebellion, the stubbornness, the injustice of the people of Israel. As he's going through and he's talking about them hatching adder's eggs, talking about their spider's webs that they're weaving, he's talking about their feet running swift evil. Isaiah is not talking about the nations. Isaiah is talking about Israel, that this is the way people are among the people of Israel in Isaiah's day. When you read about justice being far from us, you read about people who live in a society where there is truth stumbling in the public squares and uprightness is not allowed to enter and that whoever departs from evil makes himself a prey, you might be thinking he's talking about Washington, D.C., but no. He's talking about Jerusalem in his own time, in his own day where the temple of God was. And this was true not just for Isaiah, but it was true for all of the prophets in all of their generations. Like Elijah was lamenting how they killed the prophets and that he alone was left. And it seemed like all the people of Israel were stubborn and rebellious. But how does the chapter end? Not with the destruction of Israel, not with the rejection of Israel, not with the replacement of Israel, but with the salvation of Israel. And so in Paul's day, when the Jewish people were on the verge of destruction through the Roman conquest of Jerusalem, and they would be scattered among the nations for millennia, wandering among a foreign people, persecuted, put to death. Yet, Paul remembers and will not allow us to forget the promise of God in Isaiah chapter 59. Look at Isaiah 59, verses 20 and following. This is where Paul quotes from. A redeemer will come to Zion. Zion is the fortress in Jerusalem, a special hill that David conquered, made his fortress. 
then the conquering Christ is the son of David, and he will come to Zion, the city of David, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. They will turn from their transgression. The people in Israel today, they are transgressing against the Lord. They are rejecting the message of God's grace. They are turning their back on their Savior. They are turning to the nations and looking for them for help. They're turning to themselves and trusting in their own military might. These are our people who are obstinate and stubborn in their heart. But God is going to turn them, and they are going to turn from their transgression. And look at what God promises in verse 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them. God's covenant. God never breaks his covenant. A covenant is a promise, like a, like a wedding promise, a marriage promise. That's why we call it the covenant of marriage. And God has wedded himself to the people of Israel. And his covenant with them, he says, is this. My spirit that is upon you, probably speaking to Isaiah the prophet, as he had the spirit of God upon him and spoke the word of God. My spirit that is upon you, Isaiah, and my words that I put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth. And here, he's not speaking then to Isaiah, he's speaking to the people. These words will not depart from the mouth of the people or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. There's a final turning from transgression to the Lord. There's a final pouring out of the Spirit of God upon the people of Israel. There's a final reception of the Word of God that will never change for the nation of Israel. This is God's plan. This is how the story ends. Paul told us this is how the story ends, reminding us of what Isaiah said for how the story ends. It is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, back in Romans 11. And this will be my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. And there he's combining Isaiah 59 together with other promises of God's covenant in the Old Testament. So, that's Isaiah 25 to 27. And that brings us then to the conclusion in verses 28 to 32 where we take a look and we marvel at God's wise plan. Let's look at those verses once again. Verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Stop there enemies for your sake as regards the gospel. This goes along with what the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 10. I would turn there, but I think I'm getting close to wanting to get to the end here. So Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 to 37, Jesus Christ promised that he had come to turn family members against one another. That those who received Jesus and those who rejected Jesus were going to become enemies within their own household. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household is what Jesus promised. He came to divide families because Jesus is more important than family. And this idea that you would have enemies within your own household is exactly what Paul is picking up on here, that these Jewish people who have rejected Christ, they're on the other side of the gospel divide. The gospel divides the world between the saved and the unsaved and those who reject Christ are on the other side of this gospel divide and this is being an enemy of God. If you're on the other side of the gospel divide, then you're not God's friend, you're God's enemy. And you're not trying to help God along, you're trying to work against God. And you're not for God's people, but you're against God's people. The people who are not yet Christians are not just not yet Christians. They are currently hostile towards God and they are hostile towards God's people. They are enemies 
according to the gospel. But what did Jesus command us to do to our enemies? Harass them, harry them, don't buy from them. Shut down their businesses. Take them off of social media. No, I don't think he said any of those things. He said, love your enemies. Do good to those who despitefully use you. Don't become like the enemy. Don't use their tactics. Be a Christian. Love your enemies and do good to them. Yes, they are enemies, and we will call them enemies, but we will love our enemies. That's what differentiates the Christian. We're not so naive as to think we don't have enemies. Don't be that Christian. You've got enemies. They hate you. They hate your Christ. They hate your Savior. They hate your truth. They hate your God. And if they had their way, they would probably not buy from your business. And they would probably put you behind the gate. And then they would probably have a final solution for you as well. But that's not what we do. They are enemies as regards the gospel. But as regards election. So there's more than one way to look at a person. You know, everyone always wants to oversimplify things and say, you either have to just overlook everything and just lovey-dovey or you have to you know, just focus on the negative and hate everybody. No, no, no. We live in a complicated world with complicated things. So yes, they are enemies. They're on the other side of the gospel divide. But these enemies are elect as a nation. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. And here, once again, Paul's talking about national election. Because Paul doesn't know whether these Jews are personally elect or not, but he's talking about their national election, that they are chosen by God as his nation, and that cannot change, and it has not changed. God has not set them aside as his nation. They are still his nation. And that is one of the reasons why we love them. God loves them for the sake of the fathers, and we love them for that sake as well. The same attitude that God has towards people is the same attitude that we have towards people because we have God's Spirit. And so, if God loves the Jewish people for the sake of their forefathers, we love the Jewish people for the sake of their forefathers. We do good to them even if they don't do good to us. That's what it means to be a Christian. And notice the reason why they are still God's chosen nation in verse 29. This is a great verse. It doesn't just apply to the Jewish people, but it applies to all people, Christians. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When God gives you a gift, he doesn't take it back. When God calls you to be his child, he doesn't say, eh, change my mind, I didn't know you were going to be that way. He knew you were going to be that way, and he still called you, and he still gave you the gift, and he's not going to take it back. And that's not only true for us Christians who are Gentiles, it's also true for Christians who are Jews, and it's also true for Jews who are not Christians. God has given them gifts. God has given them calling. And he's not going to take that back, no matter what they do. His gifts and his calling are irrevocable. He'll never take it back. Now, he comes to the awe and wonder of the wisdom of God's plan of salvation, especially here in verses 30 to 32. Notice how salvation comes full circle. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. So God is working here between Jew and Gentile in marvelous ways. 
When man is unfaithful and disobedient, then God brings blessings upon another group of people. And the blessings that he brings on that group of people are then going to come back and bless the people who were disobedient. And this is God's wonderful way of working in mercy towards all. And notice verse 32. God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. When you think of yourself, don't just think of yourself as an American. Don't just think of yourself as a Nebraskan. You've got roots that go way back further than that. Now, not all of us know about our roots. Some of us are you know, more into the genealogies and the traditions, and we can identify and, and keep some of that alive in our families, and some of us are just like leaving that behind. But whatever your situation is, whatever country you came from, whatever roots you have, you know what? If you're not from Abraham, if you're not a Jew, then you're from the nations. And you go back far enough, and, and what is the history of the nations? Paganism. Polytheism. Idolatry. Ignorance of God. Lost and blind. And that was the status of the nations until the time of Christ. And the gospel goes out to all nations on the earth. And so, remember your spiritual heritage. And it's dark. Your spiritual heritage is dark. And it's only because of the grace and mercy of God that is due to the rejection of the gospel by the Jews. If the Jews hadn't rejected Christ, do you know what would have happened to the nations? Judgment. You never would have existed because the kingdom would have started back when Christ came the first time. The Jews would have set up their kingdom and all the enemies of the Jews would have been destroyed. That's your ancestors. You wouldn't be here today if the Jews had believed. But the Jews didn't believe. God hardened their hearts and he sent the gospel out to all the nations and so God says, be in awe. Be in wonder that God can take something so evil as the Jews killing their own Christ to use that to save innumerable people throughout the world. And God's going to use the salvation of those innumerable people throughout the world to then come back and bless the ones who did put Christ to death so that they might receive all the promises of God that was given to them because of God's faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The more you take in Scripture, the more you see God's plan, the more in awe you are at the God who is able to work all things together for good. 